All right, let's go ahead and open our Bibles to the book of 2 Peter chapter 3, if you will. And this morning we're going to continue our look at this chapter in verses 10 through 13, but I felt that gaining the context and a running start would be appropriate. So let's begin reading in verse 1, looking at what we looked at last week. In verse 1, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come. To repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of person ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will dissolve, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Therefore, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we pray that You bring to our hearts and our minds all that the Spirit will have for us here, and all that Peter intended when he wrote these words. Father, we do thank you for your blessed word, and we pray now that you would lead and guide us through a time in it this morning, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's undoubtedly, with everything that's transpired over the last year or so, there are many asking questions. Are we close to the return of Jesus Christ? Do we see the world preparing itself as the Bible has always said that it would? Are we getting closer to a time that the New Testament talks about so readily that the second coming of Jesus Christ can be found in every single book of the New Testament? In some form, in some way, the return of Jesus Christ was a great hope to all Christians in the first century. In fact, we find many occasions within the epistles in which they wrote that you find that they anticipated his return in their lifetime at any moment. 
And it moved them and motivated them to not only diligently seek to serve Him and to take the gospel into all the world, but also to question their own personal character, to get right with Him, to make sure that they were walking according to the prescribed manner that Jesus said to walk in the new life in which He has given us through His death and resurrection through the Spirit. Today I can say with, uh, with surety that we are 2,000 years closer to the return of Jesus Christ than we've ever been before. Though we do not know the day or the hour, those same motivations and individual uh, perspective concerning our own hearts are still required of us as believers today. And we begin in verse 10 as we continue our look at the third chapter of Peter's second letter, a letter that he wrote just before his death as he was martyred as an apostle for the gospel and for Christ's sake. He reminds his readers that, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. The term day of the Lord is a term that was coined in the Old Testament. Jewish people held to it dearly. For the day of the Lord is not a single individual day. It is a period of time. It begins with God pouring out His judgment upon the world for the evil and the corruption and the sin that is in the world and culminates and concludes with His arrival and the establishment of His earthly kingdom. If you wanted a panoramic outline of that period of time of the day of the Lord, it would start in Revelation chapter 6, and it would conclude in Revelation chapter 20. That shows us this period of time that we know as the day of the Lord, a time in which God judges the world, returns, and also establishes His kingdom, and He allows, therefore, the beginning of the reconciliation back to God of all things. And that's why he describes it in the manner that he does. And also in verse 13 remember, reminds us, excuse me, that the day of the Lord will conclude with the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth that we wait for with great anticipation. But in verse 10 we once again see that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. This period of judgment will come upon the world. In other passages, it's at a time where people are saying peace, peace, when there is no peace, similar to that of the book of Jeremiah. When Jeremiah was warning the people of the coming judgment of God at the hands of the Babylonian Empire, prophets, false prophets that is, began to speak into the community telling them, no, no, this is never going to happen. It's a time of peace and God isn't going to do that. And they were dead wrong and they stumbled the people. But the term thief of the night, of course, is a term that Jesus coined. It's a term that tells us that we do not know the day or the hour that this is all going to begin. And we certainly do not know the day or the hour that he is personally going to return. So anyone who would ever, in any audacity, claim to know the exact day or the hour, you can return their merchandise at that point and just stick with the Bible. And then we see very clearly 
that as this time comes, the day of the Lord comes upon the world as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So he sees a very specific conclusion to all earthly things that have been corrupted by sin and death. And in this dismantling and destruction of the old, a new will be born. But in the wake of this judgment, and in the hope of the new heavens and the new earth, in verse 11, he asks us a question. A question in which he is uh, requiring us to ponder. And that question is this. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved. Now, take a look around you. All these things will be dissolved. When I got saved in the 1980s, there was a phrase that many Christians used that I didn't fully understand at the time. I remember pulling into church with my brand new car. And I thought people were going to be happy for me. And they all looked at me and said, oh, it's all going to burn anyway. I just thought they were jealous because I had a Trans Am and they didn't. I never really knew what they meant by that. But in the end, I see now that all the materialism that we put so much faith and trust in is all going to dissolve before us. This world, as we know it, will be concluded in such a manner. But notice the question that Peter poses at this point to the readers of his letter. Knowing that just moments he is about to die as a martyr for Jesus Christ, he asks them this question. The question I ask you today. What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Right here, right now, in the knowing that Jesus Christ is coming and He is going to judge the world and hold the world accountable for all the evil that is within it, and that He's going to establish His kingdom, And in light of the hope that we have in the new heavens and the new earth, he is asking us the question, what type of person, what manner of person ought we to be in the reality and the context of this truth? What a good question to ponder and to consider. I think it's very important that we ask ourselves, how is God asking me to live in these days? Well, Peter will answer that question for us in just a moment. But may I continue into verse 12 because he continues the thought by stating, look for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. So what type of person ought you to be? Now notice, he says something very interesting there. And it's easy to gloss right over it. But notice in verse 11, I'm sorry, verse 12, not only looking for the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but hastening the coming of the day of God, which of course is another term for the day of the Lord. What does he mean by that? Hastening it. Speeding up uh, the time to that process. Historians tell us that during the first century, there was a debate between two very prominent rabbis at that time. 
One of the rabbis was Rabbi Hanana, and the other rabbi was Rabbi Hycreus. And they had this debate going on that apparently permeated all throughout Judaism. Of course, they were the teachers of God's Word at that time, and many developed their ideas from the teaching of the Jewish rabbis at that time. And one of the rabbis stated that as soon as Israel repents, Hycaeus, as soon as Israel repents, the Lord will return. The second rabbi said, no, it's a sovereign point fixture in time that only God the Father knows and will be accomplished only in His time. Now, the New Testament seems to indicate both. But it plays out that in God's sovereignty, He has appointed a time for His return specifically. However, though, with the mandates of Jesus Christ saying, take the gospel into all of the world making disciples of all nations, we find that the New Testament Christians use that as a motivator, and Peter seems to uh, agree with both sides. In fact, he alludes to this. Let me show you this scripture. In Acts chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, it's a famous passage, and when he writes, "'Repent and be converted,' that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That word presence that he uses there is for the physical presence of Jesus Christ. He saw that the return of Jesus Christ would bring that time of refreshing. And so the motivation to repent and be converted is appearing to indicate, look, by doing so, we will get one step closer to the return of Jesus Christ. I think this is consistent with what Paul said in Romans chapter 11, talking about the time of the Gentiles being fulfilled. And notice as Peter continues in Acts chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, whom the heavens, I'm sorry, that he may send Jesus Christ, who we preached to you before. So he's specifically talking about the second coming. Whom the heavens must receive until the times of restorations of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all of his holy prophets since the world began. Very interesting. So Peter sees that our evangelism is moving us closer to that moment, fulfilling the time of the Gentiles, the time of the church, and as those individuals come to saving faith faith in Jesus Christ under the umbrella of God's long-suffering, because He desires all men to come to saving faith, as Peter wrote earlier when he said this, He says, but beloved, verse 8 of chapter 3, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing any should perish, but that all should come to repentance." But this idea that the world will be consumed in this moment of judgment. Some scholars believe that when Peter writes of fire and melting, that these are all just words that indicate that God will judge 
but it's not physically going to occur. Yet, if you look back to the prophet Micah, it is a promise that the Old Testament prescribes and to also indicate and prophesy in Micah chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. For behold, the Lord is coming out of His place, and He will come down and tread the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under Him, and the valleys will split like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. From the very beginning, the Jewish people knew that God was going to deal with this earth in a way to bring it to a close, to bring forth the new heaven and the new earth that He ultimately desires us to occupy. And that's what Peter is bringing forward here to you and I. But notice, as he then says in verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will dissolve, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Verse 13, though, leads us to the hope and the promise that He wants to instill in us. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. The concept of new heavens and new earth is not first revealed to us in the book of Revelation. In fact, it goes again back to the Old Testament. Pulling from the prophet Isaiah in chapters 65 and 66. For example, in Isaiah 65 verses 17 through 19, the promise of new heavens and new earth is given to God's people. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former shall be remembered or come, uh, should not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and my joy, excuse me, and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. Now, when John was exiled on the island of Patmos, he then concludes the, his, the book of Revelation with this promise starting in chapter 21. In Revelation chapter one, 21, verses 1 through 7, which we read before our worship this morning, notice that John uses this same language and, of course, is directly correlating this with the passage in Isaiah. Now I see a new heaven and a new earth. I'm sorry, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then He who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And He said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. 
And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Of course, this is Jesus speaking. And I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. So in light of the coming judgment of God, in the period that the Bible talks about immensely from Genesis to Revelation, the day of the Lord, and in the hope of the new heavens and the new earth that are coming uh, to us and for us, the question then again remains, what ought the manner of person shall we be in righteousness and holy conduct and godliness? Well, Peter actually goes on to answer that for us by using two descriptive words. If you look with me back to chapter 3, starting in verse 14, you will find that he therefore concludes his thought from the chapter with the word, therefore. And one had once said that every time you see the word, therefore, you have to ask, why is it there? What is it for? It means that he's concluding a thought that was previously given. Therefore, beloved, speaking to us Christians, looking forward to these things, the new heaven and the new earth, now he writes to us, number one, be diligent. That word uh, means to do something with intense effort, to be diligent in your doing of this. And that is, be diligent to, number one, be found by him at his return in peace, number one. And number two, without spot and blemish. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do to the rest of Scripture's. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of wicked of the wicked. But grow in grace, he says, and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory both now and forever. Amen. But what does he mean? Be diligent to be found in Him, number one, in peace. What does He mean by that? Well, of course, He is referring to the peace that Jesus specifically said that He would give to those who put their faith and trust in Him. Speaking to His disciples in John 14, verse 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The peace that Jesus Christ gives to us is not a peace that the world is capable of giving to us. It is a peace that is beyond our personal circumstances. And what do I mean by that? Often today when an individual is not walking in the peace that Christ gives them, They often try to manufacture their own peace by 
you know, uh, looking to set all of the circumstances around them perfectly. And by doing so, they hope to gain peace by the stability that they have created. The problem with that, of course, is that that's not uh, maintainable. You may have peace for a moment, but as soon as those circumstances change, those, that peace dissipates very quickly. I often see people uh, who try to establish their peace by you know, having a certain career or a certain uh, a sum of money in the bank or a certain degree of health and so forth. And every time I see a person trying to obtain and maintain their peace in that way, I just see one of those individuals that you would see at the circus with all those poles and all those plates spinning on top of those poles and trying to keep them all spinning at the exact same time. And you are just waiting there in great anticipation for what? One of those plates falling and him having to start all over again. Or is that just me? No. Uh, but yeah, that's what I, that's what I see. I, I just see that. So many people trying to do that. God says, no, my peace is not like that. The peace that Jesus gives us is not uh, predicated upon our circumstances. It's beyond our circumstances. It allows us to rest in peace when our circumstances wouldn't dictate that at all. It's an incredible peace. He later, in that same uh, time with the disciples in John 16, just of course two chapters later, he says to them in verse 33, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. Now in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Well, that verse alone begs us to understand what did he say? What things has he spoken to them that would allow for them to have peace in a world of tribulation? And let's, let's be honest with you. You know, it doesn't seem like the world is getting better, does it? I don't mean to be pessimistic, but I, every time I see another effort of man trying to stabilize and right the ship of this world, it seems that we sink only faster. There's so much uncertainty in our world today. There's so much insecurity in our world today, isn't there? You know, as, as we have stated before, we're like those individuals, like we're hoping that the normal that we were once used to returns to us, but at the same time we're conflicted because we're waiting for the other shoe to fall, to drop. So what did Jesus say to them that they could draw from for, to establish their peace in a time of uncertainty? Well, number one, in chapter 16, he told them of the coming of the Holy Spirit. The coming of the Holy Spirit. And that the Spirit would guide them and lead them and comfort them in this time. Number two, he talked about his ascension back to the Father. He talked about the fact that the God, the Father, after His crucifixion and His resurrection, He would once again sit at the right hand of God the Father in that place of authority, confirming that everything that He said is accurate and He is who He says He is. But then He leaves them with this. Though the world may contain tribulation, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. 
And because of the crucifixion and because of the resurrection, we now have for certain the hope of the new heavens and the new earth. And we know that if we close our eyes here, if we were to die today as a believer in Jesus Christ, we open them and we are with God for all eternity. What a blessed hope that is. When Paul tried to bring the understanding of this peace to the Gentiles in whom he wrote to, these are Christians who didn't grow up in Judaism. So they didn't know and they couldn't connect all the dots in the same way maybe that the Jewish people could. So Paul had to try to explain to them this piece. And he said it this way, of course, in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. He simply says to them, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. He doesn't even bother to try to explain it. It's supernatural. It is beyond our understanding. It allows us to look at our circumstances. It allows us to weather the storms of life, move through the tribulations of this world, and yet the peace of God guards our hearts and God's, guards our excuse me, mind, and as a result, we can rest in Him and don't have to succumb to the anxiousness that would be created by those adverse circumstances within our life. It's supernatural, he says. It's something that God gives us. Well, knowing that all of us here are probably uh, pragmatic to a certain degree, you may be asking yourself, well, what can I do to obtain it and maintain that peace in my life? Well, there is no magic formula. But I believe that as Paul indicated here in verse, uh, chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, all of this begins with prayer being prayerful each and every day, spending time in intimacy with God in a time of quiet prayer before Him each and every day, taking your cares and casting them upon Him, raising your needs, your supplications to Him, but also accompany that with the praise and the worship of God, being thankful for those things that He has provided for you. Seeing things through the light of His Word and His perspective. Knowing that any trial, trouble, or tribulation that you face in this world is never too great for God to overcome. And therefore, just resting in Him, leaning back upon Him each and every day. That's number one. Number two, it would be diving into His Word. Understanding the, from Genesis to Revelation, seeing how God is progressively unfolding His purposes and His plans throughout the world, His Word, but also realizing and discovering each and every one of the promises that God has made to you to sustain you at this time. And then by faith appropriating them, saying, God, you said it, I believe it, that settles it. And trusting in Him. When I, when I grow in my faith, and I'm still growing in my faith every single day, I don't have a problem with the promise that God has made to me. I don't have the problem of knowing that God can perform that in which He's promised. 
Where I get hung up is that I don't know how God is going to do it or when God is going to do it. He just says he's going to do it. And so if I can alleviate myself from the knowing of how or when and just simply trusting him to fulfill it in his perfect time according to his perfect plan and purposes, I then can rest and trust in the Lord. So he wants us to be found in peace. A believer in Jesus Christ should be governed by that peace. And as the world gets more and more chaotic around us, as individuals that we know who do not know Him become more and more insecure, fearful, and anxiety-ridden, they should be able to look to us and see a peace within us that surpasses all understanding. And when they inquire about it or they see it, or it may simply cause them to gravitate to you because you're a calming effect in their crazy life, then you can share with them very clearly, gently, and simply, oh, it's only because of Jesus leading them on to discovering the grace that he has for them. But notice that he also goes on and he uses a second term. Not only is he asking us to be found in peace when clarifying what manner of person ought we to be, but he also says that we should be found without spot or blemish. Now what does he mean by that? What does spot and blemish mean? I notice as I get older I have more and more blemishes, more and more spots. I've never understood individuals who like tattoos. You know, um, I, you know, I appreciate the, the art and all, but don't they understand that when you're young and if you get a tattoo of Tweety Bird on your arm, by the time you're older, it's Big Bird? Yeah, don't you get that? You know? I've always been afraid, you know, to, to get a tattoo and to find out what it would eventually become, you know? I would have to probably tattoo under a stranger thing because I have no clue what it is at this point. What does spot or blemish mean? Well, of course, he's drawing from the Old Testament once again. He's talking about the lambs that were prepared to be sacrificed on the behalf of the people of Israel each and every time it was prescribed to do so. And let us understand, notice that he said in verse 1 of chapter 3 that the second letter, like the first, is to stir up their memory, to remind them again of the things in which he has written. So I believe that he clarifies and defines for us what he means by without spot or blemish in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. We'll have it on the screen, but you feel free to turn there if you like. He says, therefore, gird up your loins of your mind and be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is his return. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. So he's saying here, now that you're a Christian, do not walk in the same manner that you did as a non-believer who is ignorant to the things of God. 
God has given you new life. And He wants you to walk in a new way, apart and sanctified from the old life. That, they, that people who see you can convict you of being a Christian simply by the evidence of your life and the conduct in which you uh, keep. But then he says, be holy, for I am holy. The standard that that verse or that reference is pulling from is God. As God is holy, now he's asking us to be holy. And you're saying, well, that's impossible. I could never be perfect like God is perfect. And you're right. You can't be. Not in this fallen state that we are currently in. But in the new life that Jesus Christ brings to your, to your life and to your heart, in that new life, the sanctification process has already begun and that the moment that you die and stand before Him for all eternity, you will be like Him. You will not be a God like Him, but you will be perfect once again as Adam was perfect before the fall in the garden. But we should strive to live as God has asked us to live here on this earth. The word holy means wholly committed or wholly surrendered unto the Lord. Every aspect of our life should be surrendered unto God. Every aspect of the old life of the flesh should be crucified with Christ and allow for the resurrection of the new life in and through Christ and the power of His Spirit. And in verse 17, he goes on to write, he says, And if you call on the Father who is who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from an aimless conduct received by the tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ as of a lamb without blemish, and without spot. There's the term. So what Paul, Peter is saying in a very general sense, he's saying, be like Jesus. Walk like Jesus did. In humility and in grace and in mercy and the power of the Spirit overcoming the weaknesses of the flesh. Live to the glory of God and allowing those good works that you live to glorify the Father in heaven and to draw people onto Christ. That's what he's saying here. That's what he is indicating. Knowing this, that the manner in which you were redeemed wasn't simply by gold and silver, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. This is what took it took to take you back and bring you back to God. And only through his blood can we accomplish such a thing. He in, indeed was ordained before the foundations of the world, but was manifested in these last times for you who through him believed in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. That's the establishment of the new life in Christ. Now walk according to the new life in which Christ has given you. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11. through 11. He said, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, he says. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, 
nor thieves, nor covetousness, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Notice what he says in verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, set apart, that means. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That is not the manner in which God would have you to conduct your life anymore. He wants you to walk in the newness of the life in which He has given you in and through the uh, sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And lastly, and in closing, Paul went on to conclude his famous epistle to the Romans when he wrote this. He said in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, writing to believers again, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, that is including you and I, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now the only way a sacrifice in the Old Testament could be sacrificed unto God was if it was perfect, without spot nor blemish. Holy, again, just as Peter said, acceptable to God. He says, this is only your reasonable service. And then he clarifies in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God has not saved us for us to conduct ourselves in the same manner that we did prior to knowing Him. He has a higher standard. He has a higher standard of morality and righteousness that is unattainable to somebody who walks in the natural life, in the flesh, in a life prior to Jesus Christ. But in the birth, the new birth, as we've been born again, God begins a work in us, sanctifying us from the inside out, setting our heart apart, where we begin to desire no longer the things of the flesh, the lusts of the flesh, but we begin to desire the things of God and to walk after Him. Now, let me encourage you, if I may, none of us are going to do this perfectly here on this earth. All of us are going to stumble and fall at one time or another. We have a battle that rages within us between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit. And that battle rages on and wars on within us as we walk through this world. But Paul also said to us that if we walk in the Spirit, we shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So let us walk in the Spirit, keeping ourselves close to God through prayer and His Word in fellowship and in service to Him. Let us lay our lives before Him, saying, Not my will, Lord, as Jesus prayed, but Your will be done in and through me. And those things that you struggle with that seem monumental, those things you seem to just not be able to overcome in and of yourself, lean into God. Cry out to the Lord. Spend time with Him and ask Him to free you from those bondages that keep you from uh, that life of victory that He so desires you to have. We're all works in progress. Each and every one of us. And that's why I insist that the grace of God be allowed to abound within this church. Because we are all works in that, on that journey, on that path to who God wants us to be. But be of good cheer that he who has started a good work in you is faithful to complete it. 
And yes, the reality of the coming judgment and the hope of the new heavens and the new earth should only motivate us further to consider what manner of person ought we to be.